Well, good morning, faith family. And is it good to see you? We want to say hello to those in our live venue. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Acts chapter 15? While you turn, turn there, can I just say, it is so good to be home. Uh, man, I thank you, all six people who missed me. Um, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you enough just how much I missed you the last couple of weekends. We had a week uh, after Christmas with family, and then last week uh, teaching at a seminary that I'm an adjunct professor for, and just... Uh, it's been a crazy two weeks, but the whole time, I'm seriously, I'm not trying to butter you up, just the whole time thinking, I can't wait to be back with my faith family. So it's good to be home. I'm excited about 2016. That's not just like a, I'm just being optimistic towards you, but, but 2015 was an amazing year for our faith family. Like crazy, crazy year, amazing. God has done some great things. And I, I really, I enter into this new year, can't wait to see what God is going to do. And we got a lot of neat things that we're going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks about expansion and multi-site strategy and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot's coming down uh, the road here in just a few weeks, and, but it's exciting stuff. Um, and so it's going to be a good year, good year. Uh, let's keep this gospel movement going, all right? All right, two people. Come on now. Hey, listen, 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 listen. Just imagine this morning, it could be a lot worse. You could be outside setting through a ball game today, right? <laughs> Hypothetically, all right? All right, let's do this. You ready? Fire it up. Acts 15. Acts 15. We're going to, the next few weeks, finish up uh, where we left off in the book of Acts Keeping the mission front and center uh, for us as a faith family as we move forward towards what God has for us. So Acts 15, if you can stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, very, very plain and simple message this morning, but probably one that cannot be more important that we get this right. Look what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Let's pray. Father, this morning we need a very simple, clear message. Because it's easy to get this wrong, and if we get this wrong, we are outside Christianity. Help us understand what you uh, want to teach us this morning through your word. Holy Spirit, come and guide us. May we all experience the freedom of the gospel. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever heard uh, the expression tilting at windmills? Uh, Tilting uh, or or, or jousting at windmills. Uh, The expression actually comes from the the old, like, 1600s novel of Don Quixote. How many of you remember Don Quixote? Anybody? Yeah. In in the novel, he's, um, he's a gentleman. He's a very uh, kind and, and friendly guy. And the thing is, is Don loves reading medieval stories. He loves reading medieval stories because he loves like castles and knights and jousting and all that kind of stuff. And he reads so many of them that he starts to believe that he's a knight. And he believes that he's been given this mission to go out into the world and write all the wrongs. So he takes a sidekick, Sancho. And he and Sancho set out on this journey to address all the injustice in the world. And on their journey, these two men come across these towering objects. And and Don turns to Sancho and says, quote, do you see those giants? I intend to do battle with them and I will slay them and we will be rich with their spoils for this is a righteous war. And Sancho looks confused because he looks at Don and he says, what giants? To which Don says this, those over there, don't you see with their long arms? And Sancho says, those aren't giants, they're windmills. And nevertheless, Don pulls out his sword, takes off on his horse to fight his imaginary giant. Tilting at windmills. It's an expression to describe someone to whom everything is a fight. Do you know anybody like that? Don't point. (laughs) I don't want to hear any names. Do you know anybody like that? Everything's a fight. Everything's a hill to die on. Everything's an argument that they have to win. Do you know any Christians like that? Some of you I'm getting pretty close to home, I think, all right? (laughs) Do you know any Christians like that? 
Fight, fight, fight. Everything's a fight. Fighting over worship styles and fighting over politics and fighting over minor theology and fighting over who has the best spiritual gift. Tom Rayner, who's the president of Lifeway Christian Bookstores like we have down the road, did an actual poll, a survey of things churches fought over that caused a major division. Issues that Christians fought over that actually caused a major division in the church. I wish I had time to give you all 25, but I'll just give you a few. Number one, actual thing churches fought over that caused a major division was the length of the worship pastor's beard. Now, we don't have to worry about that because our worship pastor can't grow one. So... I don't even think he's hit puberty yet, but that's, that's a, <laughs> what we do fight over is how skinny, skinny jeans are allowed. All right. But that's a whole nother thing. Another thing, actual things that churches had a major fight over was someone brought deviled eggs to a potluck. I'm not even going to comment on that one. Actual fight, churches had a major uh, division over, was Folgers versus Starbucks. The Bible actually addresses that one, but I'm not going to get into that. Whether or not to use a piece of land to build a playground for children or a cemetery for old people. And my vote on that is build the cemetery. Because if your church is splitting over that, it's where your church is headed anyways. That wasn't meant to be funny, but (laughs) nevertheless, some Christians fight over everything. And quite honestly, it gives Jesus a bad name. Because we don't often have the ability to discern between preference and priority. Giant and windmill. But I need to address another side of the coin that's as equally dangerous. Hear me. Just like we know Christians who fight about everything, there are also Christians who don't fight about anything. It's sugar and spice and everything nice. It's kumbaya and can't we all just get along. There's no belief. There's no deeply held passion about anything. And faith family, hear me. Sometimes your lack of controversy is the fruit of having no conviction. So when is it right to fight? We don't want to be people who fight over everything. We don't want to be people who don't fight about anything. So when is it right to fight? When do you stop and say, this is a hill I'm going to die on? And when do you simply agree to move on? It is exactly Acts 15. And just so you don't think I'm making this fighting metaphor up, this conflict metaphor, let me show you in the text how it runs through the chapter. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, verse 7, 
And after there had been much debate, verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, do you see? Running through the whole chapter is issues from which we must discern when to fight. What's the first one? Verse 1. It's a conflict over the message of the mission. What is at the heart and soul and DNA and core and foundation of the mission we've been called to? Verse 1 says, Some men came down from Judea. They were teaching the brothers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, notice this next phrase, you cannot be saved. Now, what is it that's kind of leading us? Let me give you a very, very quick background. Early on in the book of Acts, the majority of people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ are of what ethnicity? They are Jewish. But as of late, that's changing. I don't misunderstand. There are still Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but it's rapidly becoming Gentile or the outsiders. Uh, go back, for instance, in Acts 13. We left that off back in December. I'm sure you remember every detail of it. Back in Acts chapter 13, you had a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, who was a proconsul who came to faith in Jesus Christ. You had in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas go up to Pisidia. They're invited in, in the synagogue to be able to proclaim the gospel. They do. Facebook, Twitter explodes. People love hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. They want to hear more. So they agree next Sabbath to meet again. They can hear more about the gospel. What was the response? Acts 13 verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 14, what happens at the very beginning? Now we're in Iconium. Look at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, believed. This is the simple point that I'm trying to make. By the time you get to Acts 15, there's a whole lot of Gentiles being saved. The out people who had been separated from the people of God for hundreds of years are now becoming part of the people of God. And it is awesome and Satan hates it. And he's been trying to shut this thing down all throughout the book of Acts. I'll throw persecution at him. I'll throw hypocrisy at him. I'll throw distractions at him. And now, in order to shut this down, I'll just pollute the message. Just a little poison in the water. How? By adding to the gospel message... Law. The Jewish Christians were saying that these Gentile Christians, in order to be saved, verse 1, must also keep the law of Moses, specifically circumcision. Are you with me? Say yes. yes. So it's about to be on. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had what? Underline this in your Bible. No 
small dissension and debate with them. They fight. This is a big, big problem. And when they get to Jerusalem, the same thing happens, verse 7. And after there had been much debate. In other words, this is the first century version of Jerry Springer. (laughs) Chairs are flying. Hymnals are being thrown across the room. Oh, no, you didn't being said. And like, oh, there's this brawl that's taking place in Jerusalem. And this is where, this is where I think our postmodern influenced Christianity likes to step in and say, but can't we just all get along? I'm so tired of Christians fighting. And there's a part of that in which we would say, yeah, I mean, don't, doesn't that resonate with you? I'm tired of Christians fighting too, except when the gospel's at stake. Except when the gospel is at stake. Look at me. If you get this wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And if you get the gospel wrong, that will impact you for eternity. There is no bigger issue than what is the gospel. Are you with me? So it's worth fighting over. And I will fight over it. That is the gospel. And so here's what they do. They get the gospel debate team together. And they're going to put together uh, an argument that would make Donald Trump silent. If that is supernaturally possible, because this is a lock solid argument. Now, before I give it to you, I need you to come into the issue from this angle. Is the good news faith in Jesus only, or is it faith in works? Is it faith in Jesus only or is it faith in baptism? Is it faith in Jesus only or is it faith in the sacraments? Is it faith in Jesus only or is it faith in your traditions? you got to answer that question. And the apostles are crystal clear. Peter's up first. Of course, Peter's going to be up first. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Here's argument number one. It's a logical argument. It goes like this. If we couldn't keep the law, how will they? Hello, we're Jewish. We were the ones given the law. And if we couldn't do it, if our fathers couldn't do it, how in the world would you expect the Gentiles to do it? That's a pretty good argument, isn't it? Tag, you're it. Paul and Barnabas come up. Here's their argument, verse 12. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas. And they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Here's the what I would call the evidential argument. It's the evidence Hello, you're saying that it's Jesus and the law works. How do you explain Acts 10? 
How do you explain when the Holy Spirit came down upon the Gentiles by faith, just like he did the Jews in Acts 2? How do you explain what happened in Pamphylia? How do you explain what happened in Iconium? How do you explain what happened in Pisidia? In other words, we saw with our very eyes, Gentiles receive the gospel by faith alone. That's a pretty good argument, isn't it? But it ain't over. Tag, you're it. James steps up, verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Oh, James is so brilliant. Do you know what he does? Do you know what he does to Jews? He goes Old Testament. And he quotes Amos and Jeremiah and says, your own Bible told you this day was coming. So let me be very, very, very clear to you this morning. Logically, there is no way that what you do or how you live can make you right with God. Evidentially, that is in terms of the evidence, no one has ever been made right with God by what they do. And number three, biblically, the Bible is clear, the just shall live by faith. So what's the conclusion, verse 11? Oh man, I'm about to go crazy. This is the best news in the world. Y'all with me? Here's what it is. But we believe that we will be saved, that is right with God, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here's the message of the mission. Simple and clear. Salvation is a work of grace that is to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the good news good news. That's why I yell. <laughs> because listen, 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 listen. If you came here and I said, the best news I got for you is you're going to have to hope it's enough when your life is over. It would crush you. That's terrifying. To hope that one day what I've done will be enough. Oh, but no, that's why I proclaim to you what is the greatest news in all the world. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Would you please receive that? Would you receive that? That's the good news of the Gospel. And right here, faith family, that's worth fighting for. I will give my life. I am giving my life. Will you give your life? Faith, family, as your lead pastor, will you give yourself to the mission of proclaiming that news to the world? Fight for it. 
Believe it so strongly that you will die on that hill. That's not a windmill, that's a giant. That's a real, real giant. And we will fight for the gospel. Now, I've done a lot of just kind of teaching the text. I want to step away for just a moment and I want to, I want to try to get to our heart because what I think is that a lot of us would say, like intellectually, I believe that. The problem is it hasn't translated into the way we live. Well, let me ask it this way. If the gospel is the message of grace, and it is, according to Acts 15, are you, are you with me? Why do you live under law? In other words, if, if what the message of the gospel is offering you is freedom, why are you living under slavery? Let me give you some examples. I can't tell you how practical this is even for my own heart. Here's one. Why do you live under the why don't you live under the weight of hoping you'll be good enough? Here, here's where I'm coming from. Stay with me, stay with me. I bet if I asked some of you, why do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Why do you think that you'll be able to spend eternity with God? One of the most common answers is what? Because I'm a good person. And here's my question. Do you really want to put all your hope on that? That's what you're banking on? Living under the weight that when life is over, hopefully it'll be good enough. Hey, 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 don't settle for that slavery. Experience freedom this morning. The freedom that Jesus has done all you need and you can know that you know that you know you're going to spend eternity with God. I'll trade that slavery for that freedom any day. So why do you know it's grace and yet live under law? Number two, why do you live under the weight of performance when you know Christ's work is enough? Some of you are really, really, really hard workers. Why? Because you feel like you have to perform because it's rooted in your identity. Some of you, like, we long for the praise of people. Like, man, I hope they think I'm a good pastor. Man, I hope they like this sermon. Man, I hope they, they leave and like this church. And, and we kind of live under this weight of, I got to perform. I got to perform. I got to make sure they like me. I got to make sure I live up to everybody's expectation. Anybody? Why are you amening grace yet living under law? Because Christ's performance is your performance. And so you don't have to live under the weight of performance when you've got Jesus. Trade your slavery in for freedom. Here's another. Why do you live under the weight of God's acceptance of you being based on whether or not it was a good day or a bad day? Somebody say, preach, preacher. Because don't we think like that? Ooh, it was a good day. I had a 30-minute devotion. I didn't cuss out the car in front of me in traffic. 
I, I, I helped an old lady across the street. I, I, I witnessed to my neighbor. It was a good day. So God must really be pleased. What's the opposite of that? Man, today was awful. I cussed the car in front of me. And I, I didn't help the old lady that I know I should have. And, and I totally messed up. So God must not be pleased with me. Why do you amen grace and yet live under law? There is nothing, Christian, that you can do, good or bad, to make God love you less or more. He has fully loved you in Jesus Christ. Am I getting to anybody's heart this morning? It's what this fight is all about. What the gospel is. I'll give you one more quickly. Is why do we live under the weight that when we sin, we need to repay God? i got to pay him back. Let me give you an example of this. It's out of John Steinbach's book, Travels with Charlie, about an experience that uh, happened in a church in Vermont when the uh, preacher is preaching on sin and repentance. Hang with me. This is so good. This is like so clear as to why the heart defaults to law. L listen to this. Preachers preaching on sin and repentance. And here's what he says, quote, The service did my heart and soul some good. It's been a long time since I've heard such an approach, sin and repentance. It's our practice now, at least in large cities, to find our psychiatric priesthood that our sins aren't really sins, but accidents that are set in motions by forces beyond our control. Well, there was no such nonsense in this church. Good. The minister, a man of iron with steel eyes and a delivery like a drill, opened with prayer and reassured us that we were a pretty sorry lot. And he was right. We didn't amount to much to start with, and due to our own efforts, we'd been slipping ever since. He spoke of hell, not that mush-mush hell of those soft days, but a well-stoked, white-hot hell served by those who put their hearts in their own work. And I began to feel good all over. He put my sins in a new perspective. Whereas they had been small and forgotten, this minister gave them some size and bloom. And so you're hanging on the, the front of your seat like, yes, yes, yes. He's hearing sin and repentance and all he's got to do is receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And then here's what he writes. I guarantee you it's the default position of some of you this morning. He says, I felt so revived in spirit that I put $5 in the plate and shook hands warmly with the minister and as many of the congregation as I could. In other words, I feel so bad about what I've done, I've got to repay it in some way. Oh, trade your slavery in this morning for the freedom of the gospel. You don't have to live under the weight of the law anymore because Christ has fulfilled the law for you. And if he sets you free, you are free indeed.
That's the greatest news in the world. That is the, I don't care if the Vikings win or lose today, that is the greatest news in the world, and it's worth fighting for. There's another application of this that I can't take as long to do, but I'm just going to say this in, in passing, is if you know that the gospel is a message of grace, then why are you putting others under the law? That'll preach, won't it? Because what's happening in Acts 15? They're putting an unnecessary burden on the Gentile Christians. And so it, it looks like this without elaborating. Your children feel crushed because they don't feel like they can ever live up to your standards. Your spouse feels depressed because he or she never feels like they're good enough. Your friends are insecure around you because they never quite know where they stand with you. Here's a big one. Lost people won't come to your church because they feel like you're more concerned with your tradition than their transformation. Here, here's the question that Peter asked. Why are you putting a yoke around their neck that not even you could bear? At some point, the gospel of grace has to go from head to heart. Where we not only believe it, we live in it. That's the first conflict in Acts, and it is a hill worth dying for. Everything shuts down till that question gets answered correctly. But there is another conflict. We'll deal with this and be done. It happens at the end of the chapter, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in the cities where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best to take with them one who had not withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. You likely know what's going on here. Back in Acts 13, John Mark said, too tough, I'm out. And he drops out. Back now in Acts 15, Paul does not want to take him along. Barnabas does. And so they have a sharp disagreement. You know, sometimes Christians disagree. I'm glad you're sitting down on that one. Sometimes Christians disagree, and sometimes conflict happens among even the most spiritually mature. This is Paul and Barnabas having this sharp disagreement. Do you realize that sometimes you can have real disagreements with Christians who are mature in Christ? That conflict is not always a reflection of someone's lack of maturity. It might be, but it doesn't have to be. Secondly, is sometimes conflict happens among the doctrinally committed. In other words, what we find earlier in chapter 15 is what? Paul and Barnabas together fighting for the gospel. The, the point is, sometimes we are full in full agreement of the message, but we totally disagree on the methods. That's okay. It's not a reflection of our lack of commitment to God's Word. Are you tracking with me? These are the things Christians fight over. Number three is sometimes conflict happens among the missionally minded. 
This is Paul and Barnabas. They are absolutely committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. Can we? I'm not saying this for our church. I am saying this for our church, but I'm saying this about Christians in general. Can we stop with the passive-aggressive stuff? Here's how it goes. Well, because of X, you must not care about that group anymore. Or because of Y, well, we don't care about this person anymore. Listen, sometimes people who are absolutely committed to the same mission disagree. Sometimes people who are committed to the same mission disagree. And here's the last one. Sometimes conflict happens among the relationally close. This is Paul and Barnabas. They have been sent out together. They've been suffering together. They've been doing the ministry together, and they disagree. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Lord, give us this wisdom, I pray, as a church. Because you don't know how in 20 years of ministry, I feel like this has been the number one issue that has kept churches from being effective in the mission of Jesus Christ. you got to know when to fight when it's a gospel issue. And you got to learn to say, we may disagree on this method, but the mission must go on. You take John Mark, I'll take Silas, and we'll continue in the mission because this is not a hill worth dying on. Amen. Could we please do that as a faith family? Could you do that in your marriage? Could you do that in your family? Could you do that in your organization as a leader that is to learn to discern between priority and preference? In fact, I'm going to give you just very practical and quickly four questions. I, some of you here this morning, your marriage is in a fight. Your family's in a fight. Let me give you these four questions I want you to ask. Number one is this. What is the real nature of the conflict? What is the real nature of the conflict? Is it priority or is it preference? Number two. Is there an important biblical principle that's at stake? In other words, is Scripture being violated or is it simply a tradition? Number three, will the mission, that is of the church or of the marriage or of the organization, will the mission be furthered or hindered if this conflict continues? Will the mission be hindered or furthered? If this conflict continues, if things stay the way they are, where is it going to lead? And then here's, a, here's the last one, and this is important. What is the Lord trying to teach me or develop in me through this conflict? Because what's the beauty that comes out of Acts 15 and all this conflict? The gospel gets clarified and the mission gets multiplied. God, what do you want to teach me in the midst of the conflict that I'm going through? When is it right to fight? Brian, the reality is, unlike Don Quixote, our mission is actually real. And our mission is to go into the world and to help right the greatest wrong 
that has ever been done, namely man sinning against a holy God. And that right will only be, that wrong will only be made right through the gospel of grace, through proclaiming Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and through the resurrection. But if we're going to be effective in that, if we're going to be effective in that, we had better be a people that knows the difference between priority and preference, between giants and windmills. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Um, Help us be clear on the gospel and not just know it with clarity, but to live it with clarity. God, I just I pray for freedom this morning for each and every person in this place, that we would truly be set free by the good news of Jesus Christ. Come speak to us. Lay on our hearts what it is, Lord, that you want us to deal with. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today and they're in the midst of conflict, they're in the midst of of difficulty, they're in the midst of a fight, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and discernment that they might reflect you as they walk through it. Lord, thank you again for your word. Now lead us now to respond in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.